Alright, what's going on guys? Welcome back to the Stacks Ring Podcast. I'm your host as always, Daniel DeBrock, and today we've got a uh, special guest, Brian Carroll. So Brian, first off, thanks for jumping on, man. It's uh, it's really great to have you here. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time. I've followed a lot of your content, and uh, can you give a little bit of a background of yourself for maybe those who aren't familiar with you and kind of what you've been doing? Yeah, so it's good to meet you. You and I really have never had a conversation before, so we're just starting off now, so it may be more interesting for us than it is for the listeners, but I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm going to be 42 years old this July. I'm a father of twin girls. They're three. Been married for 15 years or 13 years now. And I competed in powerlifting from 1999 to 2020. And I started off uh, doing raw bench meets when I was in high school, uh, not in high school, but outside of high school in like the local competitions we didn't have uh, powerlifting or weightlifting in high school the girls did but the guys didn't so i got started with that kind of finished playing baseball in high school and then put my head down and competed in powerlifting for the next 20 some years and gave it everything i had i did play around with a little bodybuilding here and there but uh, powerlifting was my thing i loved it i was all in and gave it all i had and uh stopped competing in 2020 and now I am focusing on helping as many athletes and lay people as I can with their, in particular, their low back pain, as I have a story myself uh, with back pain starting uh, about 12 or 13 years ago, really culminating, going to coming to a head in 2013 with the help of Dr. Stuart McGill. And uh, we actually wrote a book about the process called Gift of Injury. But uh, so now my focus is helping as many people as possible and uh, helping them avoid my mistakes, but they do make some of the same mistakes. I work on trying to get them feeling better because if any of you out there have had back pain, you know that the doctor is not going to be able to help you. You go to the surgeon, you spend 15 minutes with them. You go to the PT. If you're lucky, you have a good physical therapist. Unfortunately, their time is limited. They generally have a few people um, they're seeing at the same time, so it's not that effective. So, um, I understand where you're coming from if you have back pain out there. So that's my focus these days and just, uh, you know, not compete anymore. So that's my way to live vicariously through my athletes. Awesome. And I guess that kind of leads into the first thing that I did want to discuss is you have a pretty interesting background in the sense that you sustained a really serious injury, but then you came back and were able to put up some very elite totals. Uh, after your back injury, and and it, it was a it was a really bad one for for those of you guys who aren't uh, aren't familiar, and so I think that offers a pretty unique perspective, especially the work that you were doing with uh, Dr. Sue McGill, and you know some of the other individuals you were kind of working with at that time. And so, I guess one of the things that I'd like to learn a little bit more about are what some of the big turning points were for you on your road to recovery, whether it be you know, kind of a paradigm shift for you or certain focuses or different treatment protocols, anything like that? Yeah, well, I'd exhausted the traditional go to the doctor, get shots, go to physical therapy, surgery consultations. A couple of people wanted to do surgery on me, but everyone was pretty much saying you're done powerlifting. And I didn't want to accept that. You know, it was affecting me. Obviously, I'd been competing at that time for 15 years or so, and I still had some things that I wanted to do. So... Someone led me to Dr. McGill. I was reading his stuff a little bit. and You know, back then, there wasn't too many powerlifters that, that knew about McGill or had worked with him. I mean, since you've seen a lot of people like J.P. Price and Blaine Sumner and, 
you know, Steffi Cohen, these people went to see him since, but we're talking, you know, 10 years afterwards. So uh, it wasn't a known thing to go see Dr. McGill as a powerlifter, even though we knew of him. So uh, the paradigm shift I had was going to him and him telling me that uh, I was in charge of reducing my pain. And the way I moved and the postures and loads and the, the way I trained and, and the way I did daily um, movements was going to determine how my back felt. And I learned that pretty quick. And I was able to wind down my pain uh, pretty significantly uh, within a, a couple of weeks to a month. So that was one big thing. And I'm able to help a lot of people with the, the spine hygiene, as we call it. And Some movements hurt some people worse than others, and everyone's different. But uh, seeing Dr. McGill was the first time someone had ever spent time with me. When you see a doctor, you spend 15 minutes with them. And there's just You can't get anything done during this time. So... Um, I was lucky to get with the best. I listened to his advice. And, you know, unfortunately, some people that I see, some people that Dr. McGill sees, I mean, we have a hell of a relationship. We saw three patients last week that were all really complicated with, with back injuries, a former Olympian, you know, a 60-year-old woman, a 20-year-old kid, baseball, football, basketball star, and then someone in the middle about 40. So I've been able to work alongside him and build a, a good relationship. But if I wouldn't have got with Dr. McGill during that time, I don't think I would have been able to beat the split sacrum I had and the end plate fractures at L4 and L5 and the, the flattened discs that I had and the retrolisthesis. I just had a lot of stuff going on that I had caused some of it. Some of it was from a fall. But uh, I can tell you I wasn't getting better in the traditional sense. And Dr. McGill had to talk some sense into me and tell me, you need to back off training for a while. You got some structural issues you need to address wind down the pain, and then maybe you get back to lifting, but I think you're done. And he told me flat out, you know, you don't have anything left in your back. And I said, well, you, you think that I can get pain-free? I'm going to return to lifting once again once I do that. Keep in mind, this is after about a five-hour assessment of us spending time together exploring MRIs, exploring what I could do pain-free, what I couldn't do pain-free. And so I pushed back and said, well, when I get pain-free, I'm going to return to the sport. And he goes, first things first. Get pain-free. Who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe we end up writing a book about it. And then I was able to come back about a year and a half. And uh, I hit better numbers at 242, better bench, better squat, better deadlift, better total by significant margin uh, post-injury. And uh, so I was very fortunate to be able to do that. But, you know, some people out there, they just want to get pain-free. They don't care about getting back to lifting. And I wanted more than that. So, um yeah, I know a lot of things were up against me, but if I didn't have someone like Dr. McGill in my corner, I don't think I would have been able to beat it. I think the one thing that you've touched on quite a few times is uh, client care. And that's something that has been really interesting to me, especially recently, because I read a, a paper not too long ago, and I can't remember the exact percentage, but essentially it was delving into how frequently... Uh, medical professionals actually utilize the, you know, quote unquote, evidence-based approach for client care. And it was something like 30% of the time, don't quote me on this, but it was like 30% of the time or 40% of the time they weren't offering that. And you think about that and you're like, that's wild. And then you think about like what, I think it's the third leading cause of death in America is hydrogenic deaths or like essentially medical malpractice. Yeah. And you're like, man, like our, our medical system, our rehabilitation system has some pretty deep flaws. And, you know, it really is 
coming back down to that practitioner and that client care that they're providing you. And I mean, the difference, so I have been very lucky where I've typically had really high quality physios that I've worked with. And there was a period where I had a really bad back injury and I went to a physio that was recommended by everyone, the best sports doctor, whatever. And that was the first time that I ever went to a physio where they were treating multiple people at one time. They'd come in for five minutes and I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, what, what is happening? Yeah. I had never even known that that was a thing before. Yeah. But now I realize that it's like really prevalent. That's how most people are operating. And it's pretty wild because I had zero faith in what we were doing, mainly because I just didn't know what the fuck was going on. They'd tell me stuff and I'm like, I don't know about this, but I couldn't ask questions because I only had two minutes. And so it's, it's really wild. Like, so how do you go about um, when you're dealing with, let's say, an athlete or someone who's just injured, how do you bridge that gap between client care where there's just not that same one-on-one -on -one connection, I guess, or that trust? Well, you know, some people might know this, but I, I worked as a massage therapist for a while, full-time, part-time, and I still use some of my techniques that I gleaned 20 years ago. So I'm used to spending hours with someone. So that's the start right there. So you don't get a massage for 15 minutes, right? You go for like 60 minutes, 80 minutes, or 90 minutes, 120 minutes or whatever. So that initially set the tone for client care for me to begin with because if someone comes in and they want their neck treated or they want their quad stripped out, you can't do anything in just a couple of minutes. You need you need time to understand what's going on with them, um, where they've been, where they're going, what their goals are. Are they a ballerina or are they a power lifter? Do they need to be a gymnast and, and mobile everywhere? Or are they that's that's where it comes that's where time comes in to be able to build a relationship, even if it's just walking down the hall with someone or sitting down with them for a couple of minutes and understanding where they are, where they're going and where they want to be. Some people just want to be heard a little bit because no one's ever listened to them before. There, no one no one ever listens. Like, say they go in and see the doctor, and they, the doctor immediately cuts them off. Oh, I see your MRI. You're fine. You're like, hold on a second. Can I tell you what I'm feeling right now, what's been bothering me for 10 freaking years? Oh, no, no, your MRI. I know what's going on with you. This is what people get when they go see the doctor. It's not like, tell me what you have going on with you, young lady. How are you doing? I'm not doing well at all. My back is killing me. Where does it hurt? Does it refer down to your glute? Does it go to your foot? When does this happen? Is it all the time? They don't answer and ask, they don't ask these questions to get an understanding where this person is. So with my back, massage therapy background, of course, being trained by Dr. McGill, I spend time with people. A minimum, I won't do a consult with someone at least it's an, unless it's at least an hour long. And that's not even hardly hands-on. Now, if we can get through some of this stuff streamlined through the questionnaire uh, via email, and then we can kind of jump into it a little quicker, that way I have a background, then we can start doing some testing and then talk a little bit more, and then maybe some programming, some exercise prescriptions and such. But I learned right away from Dr. McGill, and I have a, a, an interview with him that's coming out soon, actually, where I ask him to explain the McGill method and all these different things. But the reason why the McGill method is different is because you plan on spending hours with the client to understand. It isn't just using the bird dog and side plank and curl up. It isn't just using, um, you know, avoiding flexion or extension because some people, that doesn't bother them. So we don't avoid that. It's Not everyone needs to do spine hygiene. Not everyone needs to stiffen their core at the big three. McGill Big Three is about assessment, uh, giving someone a diagnosis and a prognosis, and then working to build the deficits and get them out of pain return them to sport or return them back to life. There is no, we never do reverse hypers or we never do stretching. 
we never do this. No, it's it's all about what's going on. Sometimes the person has very little mechanical pain, but they have a bunch of hangups with their movement stuff. We got to work with them on their movement a bit to free them up. So it isn't just about a one size fits all package. Um, you tailor it to the client and their needs and everyone's so unique. It's funny because especially with the emergence of the biopsychosocial model and how that's become a lot more, um, I guess, widely accepted among clinicians. Yeah. There was a period there where I was hearing a lot of people kind of shitting on McGill's big three and a lot of the stuff that he was saying and being like, oh, it's overly reductionist. It's too mechanistic. It's more complicated than that. And it's like I'm looking at that and I'm like, okay, I understand what you're saying, you know, in terms of, hey, we probably shouldn't try and reduce it down to like a single thing because that's not always the case. But at the same time, it's like, man, he's helped a lot of people. And I don't know how you could rectify that. You know what I mean? Like how, how, I don't think that's by chance. You know, I don't think that that's explained by just, oh, they just felt like they were getting treatment and therefore they were getting better. It's like, I, I don't buy it, you know? Yeah. Especially for athletes like yourself, right? Who have to perform at a very high level. Like I, I just, I don't know, I don't buy it. So like, I understand the, the biopsychosocial model, big advocate of it, but at the same time, I think there is a little bit of a push too far in that direction and a little bit of a, you know, kind of a departure from some of the very basic mechanistic stuff that we actually do know, you know, maybe it's a little unclear what those relationships are at times, but I definitely think that there's something there and it's probably a bit naive to, or maybe not naive, but, um, I don't know what the word is, maybe risky to right. abandon it's it altogether. to just throw it all out. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I've heard the same um, things, you know, and, you know, everyone at some point gets really, you know, made fun of or, like, called an idiot and all this stuff. But you're right, there's a, there's an overcorrection for a bit where people are like, no, your back's fine, you know. Yeah, some people's back is fine, and they just have a little bit of pain or used to have pain or whatever, and they're struggling mentally. I get all that, but just saying oh, you're fine. MRIs don't mean anything. You know, pain mechanisms and generators don't mean anything as ear point, not just the power lifters, but the people that have to sign NDAs that I work with and that we know Stu has worked with. We're talking NBA, UFC, NFL, MLB, like the who's who of athletes go to him for their back, not someone that wants to give them a shrink session. They go to the expert for their back, but he, he can't talk about it. He has no reason to, doesn't want to, nor could if you if you wanted to. So, and I can't either when I talk with people. But here's the key to it: McGill doesn't see people that this worked for, that 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 the psychosocial model worked for, or for the stretching model worked for, the chiropractic or the massage or the traditional PT. We see people that all that has failed. They've been told the pain's all in their head, and they're about ready to to blow their head off because they think they're crazy and they don't deserve to live. And then there's the other people that are said, you can never move again. Don't ever move. You're done lifting and all this stuff. So we see the people that fall through the cracks and these traditional methods or newer methods don't work for. And that's why we have a holistic approach of identifying the cause of pain, removing it, building pain-free capacity, doing a long assessment, thorough assessment, and then you come up with, with a plan. So... Yeah, some people can get better with that, that type of model, right? Some people can get better somehow because of their superior genetics or they don't have too bad of a back injury, so a little stretching, a little rest, they're as good as new. But I don't see people with that. I see people that have seen 10 practitioners 
and they've tried everything that we've talked about and it doesn't work for them. So then we start and we, we start fresh with uh, removing the cause of pain. So that stuff can work, mm -hmm. but I stay super busy that I can't even keep up with it because of the fact, the overflow of people that fell from those approaches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And so I was reading actually one of your articles on uh, on your website, um, just kind of as I was doing like some research and refreshing uh, some, some of the content that you put out there. I was reading an article that you talked about um, kind of bulletproofing your back and whether or not in order to do that, you need to develop more absolute strength or strength endurance of the musculature and the trunk musculature. And I thought that was a, you know, fairly interesting thing. And I, I don't think that necessarily it's something that's discussed probably as often as it should. Um, because you always hear like, you know, what, what it was the expression, like weak things break, therefore you need to be really strong. Right. And it's like, that's super important, obviously. But then also there's like an endurance factor there as well, right? Especially if you're doing lots of heavy training, building into a big meet or something like that. So I was wondering if you could kind of discuss that in a little bit more depth. Um, and then also potentially touch on how you might implement that from like a programming standpoint and how those variables might change depending on where you are in your competitive season. Obviously, you can't be super specific, but just kind of a big picture principled perspective on it. Yeah. Um, so it's about it's about spine endurance, muscular endurance, like protecting the back. So if you look at the studies for people that uh, generally hurt their back. It's due to fatigue and then a breakdown in form, whether they're loading boxes at work or they're picking up something around the house or they're lifting weights. It's usually due to a lack of stiffness or um, a lack of uh, endurance and then the muscles buckle and you end up having the injury. So we approach the training by building uh, stiffness with uh, uh, static exercises. And uh, not the bending over and over exercise that you see bodybuilders do or whatever. And that has its reasons too. But we want to be able to build muscular endurance in the positions that we're going to need to be in for a squat or for a deadlift or something like that. But for someone a little different, you know, they might want to uh, approach it a little bit differently for their different sport. But for powerlifting and strength training specific, having the locked in building super stiffness under load is uh, what's worked great for me. Uh, not just rebuilding my back, but being able to make my core super endurable and being able to keep it locked in under time without any buckles or micro movements. And it's been able to help dozens and dozens of people get out of pain or avoid pain and take their training up to the next level. Now, I'm not saying that if you bend your back and do cable crunches or reverse hypers or hyperextensions, your back's going to break and it's going to be weak. There's a lot of different factors that go into this, namely the type of collagen you have in your disc, the shape of your disc, uh, how lucky you are and how much you're bending and flexing, how big you are. There's different things that go into that. So there's plenty of people out there that can bend and flex and still build an endurable core. But we do know that eventually some people will stress their annuluses and start to build disc bulges from Bending and flexing under load with compression um, that, that gets some people, not everyone, but it gets some people. So the way I build a core, if I'm training a power lifter, I like to do suitcase carries where you, you, you create a little bit more compression on the spine by holding a kettlebell in one hand, then maybe go to bottoms up 
bottoms up carry works the grip a little bit more. Any micro movements in the core, it's going to want to move the kettlebell a bit. Um, stir the pot and their variants. Planking on a Swiss ball, doing small circles, going north, south, east, west. Of course, the big three. But a note on the big three is most people that do the big three, even like pro athletes that I see, or even like good power lifters that seemingly have a, a strong and rigid core, they don't do the, the, for instance, the bird dog right. They don't hold it for 10 seconds. And it's not like it's this glamorous, super hard exercise, but most people struggle to do it right. And then I tune them up a little bit and they say, oh, now I feel like I'm actually getting something out of it. I'm getting a more posterior chain core stability. And then you go to the side plank, you lock that in properly. You get the lateral and then you do the, the curl up or a dead bug moderate, moderated uh, variant. Then you get the interior core a little bit too. But I like to do any type of static. Good mornings can be good too. The, what happened there? Something, something. Uh, I just cut out a little bit, but I, I, I heard everything. You okay. um, but I like to use static um, stiffening exercises that won't soften up the disc for someone who's trying to be brutally strong and that will build as much stiffness, not just in the back muscles, but in the disc so it can bear load better. And uh, that's the way I like to train it, man. Before and after training, a warm-up with maybe some suitcase carries, uh, a couple like big three, you do your normal workout, whether it be a squat, deadlift, or bench day, and then in, maybe some stir the pot, maybe a couple bottoms up carries, maybe some sled drags, maybe something like that. But there's really um, all kinds of different variations and ways to make the exercises harder. But that's that's the things that I like to use to, to build the core. Mm -hmm. and, and so you mentioned... Um... And Sorry, bulletproof the back, but there is no true bulletproof in anything. If you, you lift heavy enough and you have some kind of movement under load, uh, things will blow apart. But you lessen your chances to move under load by building that stiff and durable stiffness is the word I'm looking for. Durable stiffness under load. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so do you find it all that... Um... Because I know in your article you mentioned doing it before as well as potentially after. So, like, as part of your prep work, part of your cool down. Um, do you find that if you do it before, that fatigues an individual? And so it hampers their ability to actually maintain rigidity during the uh, during the lift? Or, like, you're just talking about going, like, fairly, fairly light or kind of progressing into something? Well, if the lifter is getting fatigued just by doing a couple core exercises, then he probably shouldn't be under the bar. But... With that caveat, yeah, if, if I beat someone down with, uh, you know, a bunch of McGill Big 3 and they're fatigued, that's not going to serve them, right? So it'll just be a little bit. So we won't give them a heavy dose before. I might have them just do a couple per. Three bird dogs, 10 seconds, side plank, curl up, and then maybe build it up over time. So it's going to be the right dose for the right person, of course. So, yeah, to your point, you do too much core, then you are exhausted, you're tired, and then... Uh, when you're fatigued, you're more likely to buckle and move under load, which isn't good anyway. So a, a little bit can prime it, right? You stiffen the core a little bit, which will help unleash the distal athleticism and the ball and socket shoulder and the hips. So that can be good, but too much of anything can be a, a, a poison as well. So uh, I like the priming it at the beginning of the workout. And then at the end, if you got a long car drive and you have some, some uh, achy back sometimes, 
it might not be a bad idea to find a little bit of a hack before you get into the car after a squat and deadlift session and drive home an hour. But everyone's different. The stiffening might be bad for them at that point, or it might be good. Everyone's unique. Yeah, I only mention that because I know uh, a lot of people, especially if they're like, oh, fuck, I should try this. Then just jump right into it and like hammer it out and treat it like it's its own training yeah. session. Um, I know I definitely used to do that for sure when I had like weak points. I was like, oh, I'm going to hammer the shit out of my external rotation on my shoulder. And then I get to the bench press, and my shoulders are just completely fried, and so my bench is garbage, and the technique looks like shit. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, I uh, I also really liked the uh, the the article or kind of discussion that you had around um, accessory work. So, how to identify accessory work for your weak points, how to implement it, how to scale it. Um, I thought you had some really really great recommendations on that, and I was wondering. Um, if you could go through how you might uh, how you might assess a lifter for some of those weak points, and then looking at implementation from because I think you know it's like are you going to use let's say a good morning? So I think one of the exercises that you mentioned for deadlift was a uh, pin good morning, sort of like a dead good morning or something yeah. like that. So you're going from that start yeah. position. But then that compared to, let's say, like a dumbbell RDL or a 45-degree back raise, like the, the rates of fatigue are going to be very different. And so how do you go about prescribing exercises to address weak points and then also just kind of talking about the whole, you know, making the most of your accessory work or whatever? Yeah. So I, uh, you know, over time of, of coaching people, I kind of found the algorithm, algorithms of what work for people. I assess the lift, obviously. That's what I start with, and I see where they fail. I see where their strong points are. We make sure that the core is shored up. Um, but then I also look at what are the demands of what they're doing. So if we're talking about powerlifting, we obviously know what those are, very unidimensional pretty much. And then what are they weak at? What are their strong points? And I'll tailor their assistance work uh, to attack their weak points and not focus so much on their strong points. And... But then you also got to consider where are they where are they in training? Are they close to a meet? Are they far off in an off season? What is what is their injury history? So some things aren't going to be good for someone that uh, let's say someone's just uh, you know got kind of a, a back that goes out every once in a while and flares up on them. Well, maybe we don't do the uh, chain suspended the good mornings. We might go to something with a lot less compression, like the one leg RDLs or something like that, depending on what their weak points are and stuff. But the amount of compression varies between exercise to exercise so much that you got to keep that in mind too, uh, in particular with the back. But uh, over the years, finding exercises that work for people, someone misses at the top, which I used to sometimes on the squat. That was generally a, um, a quad quad issue driving all the way through. My, my quads would kind of die on me that I kind of just fold forward. So then I'd have a little more quad-centric focus for those people or myself. Maybe like half leg presses, things like hack squats, uh, piston squats, keeping the pressure on the quads. Of course, maybe reverse sled drags and different things like that. Um, but one common theme that I see for squat and the the deadlift is people just don't have that core endurance because they don't train it. They don't build a lot of core endurance doing the the Russian twists, the the flexing, the sit ups, the leg raises, um, the reverse hypers. They don't build a ton of endurance with that because it's a different type of stiffness than flexing and, and, and bending it over and over. So getting them to do some planks, 
getting them to do some stir the pot, some kind of suitcase carry. Now, strongmen that carry the yoke and everything, that's different. They generally don't have core deficits like that, right? Because they got to do the yoke and do farmer's carries. But a lot of power lifters don't train their core, and it's really crazy. And I, and I see it like I'll have some of these guys that can really lift some weight. And they come here, and they can't hardly do a bird dog. And I'm thinking, man, if you could just stir up your core a little bit more, you'd be so much more efficient in your lifting. So, um, you know, I wrote the book almost 10 years ago now, 1020 Life, and that's where a lot of my philosophy came from, from the book, uh, 1020 Life. And I have an entire weak point index where I say, okay, well, try these exercises. If you miss on the bottom of the squat, the middle of the squat, the top. Same thing with the bench. Bottom, middle, top. Same thing for the deadlift. Bottom, middle, top. And... A couple, a couple of things on the checklist is, number one, make sure your form is good and it's tailored for your physique, your goals, and your specific build, not physique. Uh, that's the first thing. And then your core. Those, those two things right there can take care of a lot of things, your positioning, and then your core endurance for people with bad form or, or lifting form or, or weak points. It, between grip and core, I think we cover a lot of it you know, with, with people's weak points. But then, you know, some people, like, have a quad deficit or they can sling it off their chest in the bench press and they can't grind it in a lockout. So then you can work some range of motion, like pen presses and such. Um, but uh, I like to start with the most low-hanging fruits and just kind of go up the escalate as necessary and go up the ladder depending on who the person is and if the problem's getting taken care of or not. But, man, a lot of the time it comes down to uh, – you can only suggest things for people, and a lot of the time people don't want to do it, or they'll kind of make it their own and may bastardize it or make it better. Who knows? But at the end of the day, uh, you got to experiment, and uh, the lifter or the person you're coaching has to be willing to uh, be honest with you and truly try what you're trying to get them to do. Otherwise, the relationship won't work, and your best weak point suggestions won't work for them either. Yeah, it's definitely tricky because I noticed that um, for myself in the past, for sure, and also for a handful of clients that I've coached, when they have some sort of issue and let's say we identify that it's, you know, the pain in their shoulders due to shitty internal external rotation capacity of the shoulder. And so we get them to do certain drills and exercises and then all of a sudden they free it up, they've got better stability, they've got better, you know, positioning at end range and all that jazz. And, and they just kind of slow down on it. And it's very difficult. Like if this is someone's threshold where if they go past it, that's where they start experiencing pain, they'll kind of build up to about yeah. here. But they never really create a buffer. And that's really tricky because when someone's in pain, man, they're motivated. But when the moment you get out of pain, you forget it ever yeah. happened. Like you completely just forget. And it's very difficult at times to get people to stay disciplined with those activities that are like, Hey, this is fucking important. Like this is going to keep you healthy. This is going to keep you progressing. Cause I mean, I was chatting with, um, I think it was Dave, Dave Tate, uh, when I was on the podcast a while back and, and he was talking about like momentum and how you, he's like, momentum is one of the most important things. And it's also one of the hardest things to, to develop. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's it. Maybe I'm just making that up. I don't know. But um, I, I like, I definitely agree. And one of the issues is like little fucking injuries, you know, all oh, my elbows beat up. So I can't push as hard in the bench or all oh, my back or my hip or my knee. And it's like, it's so difficult to get people to consistently 
you know uh, put put deposits in, into that uh, in, into that bank, so to speak. Um, so that one of the things that I was wondering that, is exactly with clients yeah. they they they, yeah. they get out of pain and they think they're home free and they just revert back to everything that they were doing that uh, that caused their pain and injury in the first place and they backslide they have a relapse. Man, I'm so mad. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I got lazy. Well, they can get out of pain again, but they seem like they kind of keep learning the lesson instead of staying disciplined and uh, building more capacity instead of just having, you know, you have one bad day and you're back in pain. That's that's not a way to live. You got to take your time. And people want to rush that too. Either they revert back to the things that hurt them, or they rush back into lifting. You know, I'm going to turn in, you know, I'm going to turn into a pumpkin if I don't weight train heavy for two months. They're freaking out. Meanwhile, if they understood and would like talk to people that, that knew what they were talking about or do research, they'd know that, yeah, you might atrophy a little bit of muscle, but if you're on a little bit of drugs, you're eating good, you're not just, your muscles aren't going to all go away, dude. I don't even lift weights anymore, hardly. I haven't lifted weights really in the last two and a half years. The heaviest I go is like 200 pounds on the bench, three or 400 pounds on the squat and deadlift, and I'm still carrying a lot of muscle at 280, taking HRT, and kind of eating reasonably what I want. Your muscles aren't just going to go away if you don't train for a couple months. Will you flatten out, lose some glycogen, all that? Yes, you will. But it'll come back like that. And people are like, oh, I'm going to you know, lose everything. If you're that worried about losing everything, then you weren't that good to begin with. Or if you're worried, you're not that good anyway, so you shouldn't be worried. That's the way I look at it. Like, the way you're going to <laughs> You got to yeah. take some time off, heal, stop doing the things that hurt you all the time, be compliant, and then, you know, build a, more of a buffer, a threshold in your words. I like that. People have built this much capacity, and they're like, oh, I got to get back to lifting, and I'm ready. And then they, oh, I tweak myself. What happened, Brian? I can't believe this happened. And then we do the shit over and over and over. And I'm like, when are you going to learn? But then other people, professionals, yeah. and they follow it to the T, and then boom, and they just keep checking things off. They have a little bit of a setback. You know what? I'm going to learn from this. And and being professional and working with professionals is that's a good time. Not everyone, not a, not a, every one of our clients are going to be like that. Yeah, and, and it's funny too because a lot of the times when you actually take that more slow and gradual approach, it seems slower and it seems more gradual. But after the first, let's say, couple of weeks, the rate of growth is exponential. Whereas the other guy who kind of pushed it push beyond his capacity a little too early and then he kind of got to come back so it's more like this kind of up and down and uh, one of the things actually that I see fairly commonly is when people are being diligent with their rehab yeah. but they're trying to treat it like training where it's like you know maybe I'm, I'm going to get a, a client to do some dumbbell flies or something like that because it's like hey we need to get you just more mobile yeah. in your shoulders Right. So I'm like, focus on high reps, just, you know, get get the movement in, try and push your range of motion. Don't push the pain or anything yeah. like that. And then they just start fucking pushing. And it's like, dude, that's not what this exercise is for. And then they hurt themselves and they're like, oh, see, it wasn't this. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know, that's like using a steak knife and then you jam yourself in the hand and saying that knives are bad and shouldn't be used to, to eat food or steak or something like that. It's like it doesn't make any no, sense. And, and it's about the, the application or whatever you're whatever it is that you're telling them and. Unfortunately, some people we just can't help. Those are like some of the people you can't help. You'll tell them mm -hmm. to do five, and they'll do ten. Then you'll say, "Hey, you're doing too much," and they'll keep doing it. Um, you know, 
you, you mentioned the, 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 the up and down, right? Instead of the even killed person. What are you building when you're even killed? You're building positive momentum going forward. You don't have a setback every week, which will start exactly like the like the psychosocial model. It will start messing with your head. If you're having a, if you're having a flare up every time you move because you keep picking the scab and you don't think about how you're moving and you're not cognizant about it, yeah, it's going to make you crazy. And yes, you're going to sensitize yourself mentally and physically to the pain. I, I, I agree with that. But at the same time, you got people have to take ownership. Or, uh, you know, when they really want to get better, you know, they got to take ownership and say, you know what? Yeah, I messed up and I, and I was doing dumbbell flies too hard. It's my fault. It's not Daniel's fault. He tried to tell me to go at like 40% and I'm going at 140%. It isn't the exercise. It's the dosage and the execution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something actually that I'd love you to touch on as well is kind of the dose response relationship to uh, maybe certain flexion based movements, like let's say a Jefferson curl or maybe a deficit stiff leg deadlift where we don't have a, you know, there's not an egregious amount of spinal flexion, but let's say there's some spinal flexion coming in the thoracic versus the low back. And if you could kind of differentiate between those degrees, I guess. Well, we know that some people do fine with uh, flex in their back and other people don't. So are we talking specifically about power lifters or just flexing in general, or what are we talking about? Uh, you know what? Just do whatever you want. Power lifters and then just kind of go off on a tangent. Okay, and then restate the question for me just so I can have it clear. Yeah, so uh, talking about the degrees of freedom, I guess, that you Got can it. have in terms of f- spinal flexion and then also where the flexion is occurring, if it's segmental or more global and, and evenly distributed and so on and so forth. Yeah. So – when we're talking about, let's start with training. Some people can, can move their back just fine. Uh, some people start with like a flexion moment and then they keep it locked in there, kind of like you've seen with, uh, I don't know, who, who, who kind of pulls like that? KK used to pull like that? Like KK. Yeah. And, and yeah, he put a lot, of, a lot of torque on his back and compression and such, but the worst is the movement under load, according to the science. It's the movement under, under the heavy compression and load. But the moment isn't quite as bad. Some people have flexion moments all the time, and they're fine. Um, some people, they can flex their back like crazy, and they're good for a long time. Uh, other people have just a little bit of a micro movement, and they blow a disc apart. So um, I see a lot more people successfully with thoracic flexion than uh, people with a really you know, kinked up spine uh, in, the, in the lumbar that you see like on the – how old are you? Okay, do you remember that guy, um, Diesel Weasel or whatever his name was, that was always pulling with the super rounded back or whatever his name was? He would always post videos like trying to blow his back apart, and his back every time would be completely rounded over. And anyway, he was when the forums were new, he was always posting his videos for people to critique him, and he looked like he was trying to kill his lower back. So anyway, my point is some people, their back is bulletproof. You know, like that one guy, Deadlift, who is the guy on Instagram now? that pulls from those six, six, uh, like three feet negative deadlift from a deficit. Have you seen that? No. There's a guy on, there's a guy on Instagram now that pulls from a deficit. That's like over two feet and he has to reach all the way down. 
arms are past his toes to grab the bar and he stiff legs it and all this stuff. Some people are touched by the hand of God and they can, they can flex. Other people can't do so much. Now, for rehab, some people can, let's say they're flexion intolerant. Any type of flexion really causes them a lot of pain. Those are the people that shouldn't be deadlifting with that type of back. Okay? Now, the people that it doesn't hurt them and they can do a bunch of, like, extension, cranking their back on their facet joints, they're fine, or flexing forward and they're fine on the deadlift, then I don't think that's bad for them. But until that start causes pain, so be it. If they pull the best that way, they can do that, but they might pay for that a little bit later. So for the rehab aspect of it, if they're having pain, um, deadlifting with that type of form, or those movements cause them pain, some people have the, uh, a lot of people actually have the mindset of progressive overload. Maybe you remove flexion for a little bit and then you start slowly adapting to flexion again. The only problem that I see with that and experiences with clients that come to me is the, the loaded people have problems with that. Now, the everyday person that just wants to be able to flex forward a little bit that aren't trying to load their spine, those people do pretty good with that sometimes. Now, the people that are lifting again that are trying to get back to flexion under load, those people don't typically do that good. Now, Going back to a point that I made earlier, I don't see these people that recover from microdosing their flexion, extension, and rotation versus the way that we have the remove the cause, let it desensitize, then slowly get back to jujitsu or wrestling or football or powerlifting or strongman. That's the way we approach it. So when people come to me, they've already tried the microdosing, the flexion, or doing the McKinsey press-ups and extension, um, this stuff made them worse or it didn't work for them. Now, there are people that it works for them, and I, but I never see them because they've gotten fixed. I see the people this all fails for. So generally, uh, their rehab will be focused on the things they can do well that don't cause them pain. And depending on what their end goal is, if they're a real flexible athlete or a stiffened one like a powerlifter, I'll tailor their program to, um, you know, to meet the demands of their sport. But then you have some people in the middle, like a UFC fighter or like a Green Beret or a SEAL. So I, I've had people that have blew their back out doing the sit-up time test. And that's a really tough one on a bigger guy that, that has a bigger spine. That's a lot of stress on the disc after running with a, a rucksack and then doing, you know, 60, 70 sit-ups in one minute. So sometimes they need to get a surgery. Sometimes I can fix them but they still have to face that sit-up test. So what we do is we train them statically to build endurance, whether it be planks, stir the pot. Um, we'll have them do some sit-ups at like 30, 40, 50%. So they might do sets of 20 or something instead of sets of 70. And then we'll just make sure that their psoas and their hip flexors are ready for it. And they won't do more than 20 sit-ups at one time then bust out 75 because their core is so endurable and strong. And then they don't have to worry about the test again. So there's all kinds of different ways where we have to do a little bit of flexion and extension for them to get ready for their test, but we don't train them that way and beat them to death with these things that are end up being their poison. But for someone else, they can flex, extend, rotate their back forever. That's great. They're not a back patient of mine. They're not a back client. So each person's unique, but if flexing their back hurts them, we stay away from that for a while. And then depending on what their sport is, their demands are, once it's healed and not so sensitized, they can go back to flexing their back 
How long is that? Everyone's different. Yeah, I like how you provided a lot of context around that as well, because I think that's something that is a bit difficult. You know, when you hear opposing viewpoints and you're like, they both make really, really good points, but they're not mutually exclusive. You know, like you said, it's like some people have, you know, basically an unlimited tolerance to deflection and they'll never get injured and they're just, you know, blessed. Other people are fine until they're not. <laughs> and, you know, then they just blow their back out lifting a fucking water bottle. Exactly. I see the people that blew their back out petting their dog and they're crying on the couch crippled and they have a disc bulge that's gigantic on the MRI and that's when it seemingly happened. But, you know, I, I'm a McGill practitioner. You know, I don't walk around, you know, trying to do flexion all the time because that was one of my pain generators. But, dude, flexion is fine for me. It doesn't cause me pain. My back's not exploding. All right, but I am a bigger guy, mm-hmm. and if I want to start uh, poking and prodding on those discs, maybe if I did it enough, it would sensitize me again. But if I have a flexion moment or move in flexion sometimes, it's not the end of the world. But for some people, they would argue with you and say, absolutely, flexion kills me. I don't ever want to you know, flex my back again. Well, you're going to need to flex your back again at some point, but I understand that's your pain generator, so you want to stay away, stay away with it for stay away from it for a bit but man, everyone's with their with their mechanisms so there is no one size fits all program and i think you know coming full circle to why the doctor and physical therapist and everyone else fails is they have a cookie cutter when they do spend time with you it's a cookie cutter program McKinsey press ups well McKinsey press ups for someone that has a disc bulge and they have 80 percent of their disc height that hasn't um, gotten smaller or know degenerated a little bit those people as long as they have the facet space they can pull some of their disc material back in sometimes but the person that uh, isn't as blessed as them they can end up ruining their facet joints for a couple years doing all the press-ups every day so for someone that is flexion intolerant that feels good press-ups can help but if you do them too much they can end up causing a backlash so what we advocate is somewhere in the middle Maybe here on your stomach instead of all the way up into the Maybe one fist or two fists. But you still get a little bit of shrinking the disc bulge, but without the bad stuff. So we do, we do stretching. We do McKenzie stuff. We do all kinds of arts. And some people do adjustments with the McGill method. But it's about using the correct tool for the problem that you have at hand and not just having a dogma like, oh, yeah, you have a disc bulge. You do this, this, and this. The big three and walking, you're going to be fine. Well, it's not the way it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I remember I had a pretty bad back injury uh, several years back where I, I was, like, literally in a back brace and on crutches for, like, 11 months. Oh, wow. Months. You have um, a fall? And, yeah, that uh, – no, it was – I picked up a water bottle. Oh, really? Oh, so that- and everything just, everything just fucking blew out. Wow. Like, it, it was it was very likely that I just kind of exceeded tissue tolerance prior to that, and then that was just the straw that broke the camel's back. But it was like real bad. Like I had multiple ruptured discs. I had like uh, nerve damage for my uh, sciatic nerve and like SI joint issues. Like it was it was real bad. And they were like, okay, don't walk too long, don't stand up for too long, don't sit down for too long, don't lay down for too long. You can't have sex. You can't. Do, and I was just like, okay, so literally just don't do anything. But also don't do nothing. Right. Yeah, um, so. And I went to the physio. And, and that was the time where I went to the physio. And I like, normally I've always 
been like, you know what, I can kind of fix myself. But that time I was legitimately scared because it was it was so bad. And I really was scared that I wasn't going to be able to do anything again. And so I went to a physio. This was like the best person. And same thing. That's when I initially was introduced to that like 15 minute, you know, exposure. And they were getting me to like stand on one leg on a BOSU ball and do all this stuff. And I was like, guys, I just don't think that this is helping. Like, you know, I I can squat over 600. This is like years ago. And I was like, I can squat over 600. Like standing on a BOSU ball is not enough of a stimulus for me. Like I don't feel anything happening, you know, and it's, it's, I'm not getting any better, but I gave that a shot for that full 10 months. And then at one point I was like, you know, fuck this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just, I'm done with you guys, you know, or I think it was like maybe after like seven months, I was like, yeah, I'm done with you guys. And then I just went on my own back to lifting and I did exactly that. Like I wasn't going into extension because they were getting me to do that a bunch, but it kept fucking yeah. hurting. And so I just went back, grabbed an empty barbell and started deadlifting and then started doing like paused reps and really slow reps, but like a lot of rigidity work, like you were saying. And that for me was, was a huge, huge thing. So it's, uh, it's very discouraging. Um, for people, man, they're pretty broken because they they think there's a chance that they'll reach out to me and get the same thing, the same like cutter program or the same thing they've tried. And you know, almost every time I, I get the the client or potential client to send me what they're doing, I don't know if I've ever had one that was on target, a program sent that was on target. Like, oh, that's pretty freaking good. I wouldn't. Maybe it's not exactly how I would do it or McGill would do it or whatever. That's just my bias, right? But none of them, they have people like picking their scab, doing McKinsey press-ups, stretching their back where they have an acute disc bulge to like, you know, whatever, uh, damage their disc more. I don't know what their purpose is when they're putting, like getting them to stretch as far as they can. And some of these people, dude, they're, they're in bad shape, man, because they're not getting any care. Uh, from their primary care, from their surgeon, from their physical therapist, from their pain management. It's so disjointed that no one's communicating. It's like it wouldn't be unheard of where people get a surgery here in the States and sometimes they don't get a call back for their physio schedules. And so I've seen people that literally never got a call back and never rehabbed their back. They didn't do shit. And then they saw a YouTube video where they say, okay, to fix your, your back, Put your feet out as wide as you can and reach as far as you can first thing in the morning every day for 10 minutes. And what do you think happened to that person? She's had two more back surgeries. It's just, it's it's terrible, man. Some of the care that people get. So I'm glad that you were able to come out the other side and use the common sense and the training strategy you have to not do the things that hurt you and uh, slowly build back because... The system's broken, man, and there's a lot of good physical therapists out there and physios, but most of them work on their own, if you haven't noticed. They, they do their own, they have their own practice. They don't have the model. So you asked me earlier, how, how am I differentiating myself? I, I, I'll see a couple people a day, you know, and that'll be, that'll be it. So I can focus every bit mm-hmm. of my brain on this person, everything that's going on with them, anything that I can help to get them better, and uh, anything they may, may be missing. And uh, that's how I try to make the biggest difference there. But, dude, there's no slowdown of people coming into the sport of powerlifting or strongman or whatever. Like, it's grown so much in the last few years. Also, there's never going to be a slowdown of people hurting themselves because they're new. I just pulled 315, bro. I've been deadlifting for, you know, my second time deadlifting. And you see the form they're using. It's like, you're probably going to, you know, hurt yourself soon. And 
these people that are weekend warriors for CrossFit, you know, they blow their back and knee and hip out all the time. So all you can do is kind of try to tell people and, you know, give your best to fix them when they get hurt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point about the clinician communication as well. Because, like, I'll have athletes where maybe I'm doing their nutrition and someone else is doing their programming. Or maybe I have to communicate with, um, like, a, a psychologist because maybe they have, like, an eating disorder. So I'm working in collaboration right. with them. Or something along those lines. In my entire, like, I've been a coach for about 11 years now, so not like an insanely long time, but a decent amount of time. Yeah. In that entire time, I've had one person respond to an email, call, text, whatever. And it's not like I only do it once. It's like every single check-in that I do for them, which is on a weekly basis, right. I am tagging their email so they get an email notification of what I responded to. They'll get the video that I sent, so they're 100% on the same page. I have had one person respond, and it was one time, and that was it. It's so atrocious. Like, the amount of communication or collaboration that goes on between coaches, clinicians, whatever, it's it's insane. And it takes, like, not a lot of effort, to be honest. And it's like, that's what your client's paying you to do. So I don't know why people are so bad about it. Well, it's only going to help you as well. Like, it's help. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're passing on information, so it's only going to help them make better, better and easier decisions. You want to use the word easy. It'll make it easier for them and better for them. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. But I don't know, man. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's an interesting time with uh, with medicine in general, you know, and uh, people getting into the sport of powerlifting and strength sports because they watch a tutorial on YouTube and they're ready to go lift heavy or go jump in a powerlifting meet. Man, so many people are getting really, really hurt. And, you know, a lot of them really regret it. They're like, dude, if I didn't know it would hurt me this much and affect me mentally this much, I would have never, I'll never deadlift again. I don't care if my back is fixed next week. I'll never do it again. You know, and they don't get to care, man. And they just get, they get really overlooked, unfortunately. But uh, that's why we're trying to make a difference out there. And you can't fix everyone. And unfortunately, man, some people need surgery. Some people's back is never going to get like all the way better until like they're, they're in their 60s, potentially. But most people can get significantly better. And that's why I like doing what I'm doing. I can, most people I can get significantly better, but you can't, you can't guarantee anyone an outcome, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're, we're, you know, almost coming up on that hour mark. And I was wondering, um, what sort of insights or things that you'd want to share maybe with, uh, with the audience that maybe we didn't cover? Um, well, I don't think you should panic if you have a back injury. I mean, anyone that's lifting heavy weight, most people in general will have some back pain at one time or another. But don't don't avoid it. Don't uh, don't run from it. Address it. And a lot of the time, it's your daily movement patterns that can help uh, give you more capacity for training, so you can get away with breaking form a little bit. You can train a little bit longer. Um, so. You know, a, a, a disc bulge or something like that isn't a death sentence for you, but you should manage it. You can lift again, but you need to be strategic about it. If you are a power lifter or a strength athlete, yeah, you can do some of the bendy, twisty things, but I recommend doing front planks and side planks and heavy carries and yoke walks and sled drags and things like that. That's going to help, help you build core endurance, and it's going to help you lift more weight. So go after the low-hanging fruit, especially if you're new to the sports. Stir up your form, build your core, 
you know, study, learn a lot, compete, you know, give everything your all, don't half-ass things. And uh, then from there, then worry about, you know, the special supplements and the newest trends and the newest knee wrap and all that stuff. But there's a lot of low-hanging fruit with just your core and your grip and your form on the squat bench and deadlift that people could, uh, you could exhaust yourself for over 10 years just really maximizing those things, you know? And, and, and people go after the mm. things that are just a gimmick or a flashy new thing at the time. So stay away from the flashy new things. It will be another uh, piece of wisdom that I could hand off to people. And uh, when you're seeking out an expert, yeah, of course, their, their following or social media following does, you know, bear some kind of, uh, you know, meaning. But at the same time, if people are, are really good marketers, then they're probably not that good of a clinician or coach or lifter themselves. So beware of the really good marketers out there because that means they're not too busy doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. Awesome, man. So where can people find you and are you working on any projects right now that maybe you wanted to promote and kind of tell people about? Um, I'm working on getting my YouTube a, a little bit more a steady. So Brian Carroll 1306 is a YouTube. And uh, you can find my stuff at PowerRackStrength.com. That's my hub where I have uh, my book that I co-authored with Sue McGill, Gift of Injury. It, it documents the process of getting my back fixed and use the tenets of back mechanic. Um, in my book, 1020 Life, it's a strength training book, kind of powerlifting-centered raw training is what it is. It doesn't really mention equipment. So that's my training philosophy. And I wrote that book about 10 years ago. You can find that at PowerRackStrength.com. And my social media is Brian Carroll 1306 but uh, no projects I'm working on now other than really honing in my skills as a clinician and coach and uh, helping as many people as possible with their back pain, regardless of their injury or their endeavor. I like work with a lot of average Joes. I work with a lot of top-tier athletes, but each one is unique and interesting to me. So I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it, and uh, I've enjoyed talking with you. And uh, back pain is not a death sentence. You can get better. And, uh, you know, seek out the best in their field and get them to help you, whether it's a shoulder injury or powerlifting coaching or dieting. Seek out the best and, you know, absorb the advice and, uh, you know, be careful with pushing back, especially if you're paying someone for their advice. You know, listen to them. You know, give it at least a try. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Awesome, man. So thank you so much for jumping on. It's uh, it's definitely been awesome chatting with you. I got a lot of notes here as well that uh, of, of kind of little strings of thought that I'm going to kind of pursue after this. So uh, appreciate you jumping on. Appreciate you sharing all that, all that great information. Make sure you guys give him a follow. All that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes. Check out the website. Check out his Instagram. Go support his YouTube. Uh, Brian puts out a lot of content on a regular basis, and, uh, and there's tons and tons of great stuff out there that he's been doing, uh, including his, his books that he's written. Um, uh, especially the gift of pain um, was was a fantastic book, so I'd highly recommend checking that out. And like I said, you can you can get that on his website as well. So Brian, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It was it was a great chat. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.